Welcome to the Get Real Podcast, your high-octane boost of full-on reality therapy for personal, business, and investing success with your host, Ron Phillips, because somebody's got to tell it like it is. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Get Real Podcast. I am Ron Phillips. Man, we got a great... We got a, I say it every time. We got a great show today. I think you guys are going to learn a ton. I've got Joe McBreen with us from Cross Country Mortgage. Who doesn't want to know what in the hell is going on with the mortgage industry and who better than somebody who's been in the business for two decades and between him and his um, wife is four decades of experience. And their company's been around since 2003. They've been doing this um, through the downturn. And I, I, I point that out because um, I've been doing this since 2005. I made it through the downturn. And as Joe, you can probably attest, welcome to the show, by the way. Thank you. People who were in our industry, whether they were actually on the real estate side or the mortgage side, and somehow were able to make it through 08, 09 and prosper are a, it's a very small club. So yeah, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear from you because uh, of that type of experience. That's, um, that's remarkable in our world. So tell us a little bit about your comp, your company. It's been around since 2003, but you've been doing this for a long, long time. Um, Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your company and and how you guys may be different than other mortgage brokerages or, or things like that out in the world. Well, we're, first of all, we're, uh, privately held mortgage company, uh, one one owner, if you like. Um, <clears throat> I think established in 2003. Maggie and I and our team just joined them uh, about two years ago. But as you said, we've been in the business for quite some time. We've been concentrating on the investment property turnkey stuff for about seven years and have built that up into being kind of a national leader in turnkey financing. Our company is a correspondent lender. which means that we have delegated underwriting authority with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, particularly for our investment property stuff. And that means we originate, process, underwrite, close, and fund all of our own loans, and then deliver those loans for servicing to a a servicer. But we typically keep our investment property servicing in-house. So for a client, like we may have purchasing multiple properties at the same time or adding to their portfolio, Using one lender and having one servicer service all their loans is very important for that individual borrower to manage that uh, mortgage payment on each property. Um, yeah, it certainly makes it a lot easier. And that's a little the- bit unique compared to other lenders. You know, most lenders will just deliver servicing post closing, and you really don't right. know where it's going. So we're lucky that we have the advantage to direct at least our investment property stuff into our in-house servicer. So t- tell everybody how how is that different? I mean, that all sounds really great, but. How is that different and unique, not necessarily the servicing, but that entire process than a, than a traditional mortgage broker, right? So I go out and I find a mortgage broker who, who doesn't have all of what you just said. Right. How does a transaction differ and why is it important to have that the whole so, process in place that you guys have? Yeah. So if you look at banks, correspondent lenders and brokers, your bank loan officer is typically going to sell just the bank product. That bank may only deal with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or both. It may concentrate on jumbo loans and only you know do a lot of jumbo loans. A lot of banks recently kind of shied away from government loans, FHA and VA lending. A broker will do all of that. However, they originate the loan and then they deliver that loan paperwork or documentation, if you like, on the loan to that lender. And they underwrite the loan and they fund the loan and they manage the closing of the loan. Uh, with us as a correspondent lender... You know, we would have access to a lot of different 
lenders or products, all of the big banks, all of the portfolio lenders, um, and then we can choose and get the best rates from each one on a daily basis. But then we manage the process. We, we have five girls on our team, which just Maggie and I, uh, who help process all of our individual loans. But as a company, each, lo- each lender, each loan officer would have designated processing support and underwriting support. We would have two underwriters that underwrite our, our, our production each month. So we get a lot more control over the execution of the loan. And then we control the closing and funding, and then obviously delivering for servicing. So that's a little bit more <clears throat> unique. What's also different is we most banks or lenders will set their own credit overlays on top of, let's say, Fannie and Freddie's guidelines. Right. But we're a direct lender to Fannie and Freddie, so we don't put overlays on top of their guidelines. We just follow their guidelines, and we deliver our loans to those individual investors like based on how they want the loans delivered. So when we, dele- as a delegated underwriter, we're just following those guidelines. We're not setting another layer of risk uh, guidelines on top of, of that. And that might mean, in, in, in the in investment property world, that might mean, you know, they limit the number of homes a guy can finance to four or six, whereas Fannie and Freddie will allow you to finance up to 10, you know. Right. Another, another overlay, maybe they limit your credit score to 660 minimum. You know, Fannie and Freddie will go 620. So... We can expand our production, if you like, based on the base guidelines from Fannie and Freddie and not overlays from another lender. Yeah, that's really big. And, and, and you know, that whole processing and having your in-house underwriters and funding your own loans, that is a massive benefit and, and, a, and a huge uh, separator between a traditional mortgage broker and not. And we've I mean, Joe, we've been doing this a long time. We've sold thousands yeah. of properties and we've been, we've broken more mortgage brokers than we, than we haven't. Right. Um, and it's for that reason. It's because they don't have any, con- literally any control. The underwriters yeah. are not in-house. They, they don't know what they're doing. Um, and the mortgage broker, bless their heart, thinks they can do things they can't do. I was just talking to Heather about this yesterday because we had a client who wanted to go and find their own mortgage broker because the fees were a little bit less. It might have even been with their their local bank. And I and I'm like, this is not gonna this is gonna blow up. This yeah. is gonna blow up because they think they can do something that yeah. they're not gonna know they can't do until it gets all the way to the end and the underwriter goes, Yeah, this doesn't work. You can't do this. Yeah. Not at yeah. those rates, not at those fees, not at all. Can't do it. Right. I mean to your point, most of us have the, you know, very similar rates, very similar fees. You know, it's a very, we're in a very competitive world. It's all about execution. You know, you get what you pay for, you know, that old uh, saying, but in some instances with the expertise that we have in the investment property world, we get separated from the other lenders on another level as well with our appraisal panel, you know, yes, uh, most of our turnkey partners and, and most of the relevant markets that we're in We'll know kind of who the appraisers are. They, they're familiar with the appraisers that are familiar with how they purchase the homes, remodel the homes, sell the homes for profit. Let's face it, nobody's a non-for-profit. But the appraisers would be familiar with the work that they do. So for us, it's important that we create appraisal panels through our appraisal management company in each market so that while we don't direct appraisal orders, they do go on a round robin to a, a set number of appraisers in that market who are familiar with the turnkey model. If and you that's were so, that's looking so at critical. a bank or a credit union or anything like that, they would, you know, just farm the order out to whoever picks it up for the cheapest execution. And then they go out and do it. And they may not ask the right questions of the turnkey provider. They may look for comps just on the MLS. Uh, they may not look for comps from the turnkey provider who doesn't put their homes on the MLS. 
and has the demand to purchase those homes without going on the MLS. So it's literally Russian roulette with a, yeah. with appraisers. That's literally what it is. And that's another big separator for us. Let's go back to um, something you said, because I think it's, um, this is something that unless you're in the business and unless you understand, this is something where, where people can pull the wool over, you know, your average person out there who doesn't understand this process, they can, they can really play games with numbers. So let's actually break this down and give some people what they need to be asking to get an apples to apples comparison, because you and I both know that the par rates are not that much different, right? Mm -hmm. It's what you do with the fees and how you play games with the rate you know, some people will say, yeah. well, yeah, not, but this guy's giving me a really crazy rate. Yeah, but he's he's charging you two points. He's charging yeah. you two and a half points or three points because he's buying the rate down and people don't understand how this works. Give us a real quick overview of of how that game is played and the right questions to ask so that you can get a, a real apples to apples comparison. Well, I think from a basic level, the question is, what is my rate? based on my individual characteristics, my credit score, my down payment, the property type, and the loan size at the par level without points, right? Now, the par level, the par rate that we get is a rate that's already set by the company based on the company's corporate objective. Again, let's face it, we're not in, it's not a not-for-profit, so there is some you know, execution there that needs, and the shareholders or you know, dividends to be paid or whatnot. So, but that par rate is typically very competitive among lenders. Um, some companies will have a different corporate objective over others. And that may be the difference in the rate of an eighth of a point up or down on any given day. Lenders will also charge in terms of fees. They might say, oh, this is my lender fee. But then on top of that, they have a processing fee. They have a credit report fee. They have flood certificate. They have a tax service fee. They may even have a loan level price adjustment fee. And all of a sudden you're paying (laughs) in fees, but you think your lender fee is like 700 bucks, right? Because it's part of that process or it's put in a different spot on the closing disclosure. So for us, we just charge a flat fee regardless of loan size of $12.95. Now, when we're doing multiple deals for a client, we get some economies of scale with processing the paperwork, with underwriting the file, because all three would go to our underwriter at the same time. So then we can, as an individual loan officer, I can, or Maggie can just reduce our fee. Okay, we'll apply a lender credit. Uh, so we're very uh, conscious of that when we're doing multiple deals simultaneously for one client or return clients. You know, if it's a refinance, we're always trying to reduce the, the, the fee that the lender charges. But the third party fees are what they are the appraisal fee, the title and recording fees. And the credit report fee, to a degree, are all third party and are charged per loan, you know, per, per so, deal. So what I'm hearing you say is what people need to do when they're trying to compare apples to apples is all the lenders that they're shopping, right? So if they're shopping two lenders or three lenders, what they need to do is they need to say, okay, pull my credit or give them the credit report, whatever, right? So they have, this mm. is really who I am. Yeah. And then the, the, the down payments on all of these need to be the same. So sometimes another trick they'll play is that you can get a significantly lower rate. Well, significantly, you can get a, a, a markedly lower rate by putting 25% down instead of 20% down. Yeah. And sometimes they'll play games with those. What you want is you want to say, I want all of these at 20% down. I want them all the same. I want them at a par rate, your par rate with no fees. And then I want a list of every single fee you're going to charge me, all of them. Yeah. And I want them very clear so that I can see them. And this is the loan amount that I want you to do it for, right? 
And then you can very clearly see between these lenders what it, what it really is. And, and that's really, really important. And the next thing is, how quickly can you close this loan? Yeah, because the execution of the loan is tremendous. It's, it's, it's really, really important because if you're talking an eighth of a point and somebody can close a loan for sure in 30 days or less, and, you've, and you have contracted to close in that time frame, it's the difference. That eighth of a point could be the difference between you actually losing a deal, losing your earnest money, losing the fee for the appraisal, losing the fee for the inspection, and everything else you've done over an eighth of a point when you can have somebody who will absolutely execute in that time frame. Very, it's really, really critical. And I think it's something that's overlooked by the penny pinching type out there, right? So yeah. if the fees are close, if the rates are close and one person has a, a tremendous background of execution, man, every time I would, I would err on the side of execution over saving an eighth of a point. Yeah, and it's not that we're out of the market in, in rate and fee. We're very competitive. And we do uh, yes, what we I, can. Can I can attest to that. I'm, I'm, I'm saying in, in, as, yeah. as an apples to apples comparison, I think sometimes people get... Yeah, they, they just get confused sometimes on the fees or they add them up and it doesn't, it seems lower or cheaper or they don't understand the points like you mentioned. You know, so for us, you know, with our, with our volume, the execution is, you know, the key part of it. And uh, we set the expectation internally with our team and with our clients up front that, you know, while this may be your first investment property, we're going to close and regardless of the loan size, we're going to close on that and we're going to execute that loan like we normally would for a seasoned investor or buyer. Right. Um, so what that means is, you know, for a novice purchaser or investor who, you know, has a lot of questions or set, we need to ex- set the expectation up front like we would for every single borrower. So that's what we do. That's our goal. I tell my team, listen, if we close 50 loans a month, the expectation is we should be good at it. And, you know, we have to set that expectation for the client that we are good at it. And that, you know, if you go and choose another lender who doesn't understand the turnkey model, who doesn't understand the, the processes involved, such as the appraisal and things of that nature and documenting the scope of work, then, then, then you may run into that situation where you're three weeks down into the loan application and you get a denial or you run into a problem that would not have been... Uh, and then you can't catch up. You, you yeah, we would have foreseen any up. problems in the, in the beginning. You know, we would have a dress. You know, Joe, here's another thing that we forgot because a lot of times another trick these other uh, lenders will play is they'll, they'll quote them a second home. And, mm. you know, when you're buying a home that's vacant, you know, you might be able to get away with the fact that you, you were buying it as a second home and then you decided not to after the fact. But when you're buying yeah. a house that has a tenant in place, that, that does not fly. You cannot, no. you cannot think that you can buy, a, and if you do, that's called mortgage fraud because you Correct. did not intend that to be a second home. Very clearly, you have a year lease on the property. It's obviously an investment property. And, um, and there's, you know, there's, we do a lot of due diligence. You know, we'll see if it's on the market. We'll see if it's leased. We'll see. Most second homes that we will finance, there has to be a really good reason for it being a second home. Like, is it in a destination point? Is it on a lake? Is it on a beach? Is it, is it geographically, does it make sense from the borrower's primary residence? You know, Right, purchasing a second home in the same town that you live in, and that's not going to fly necessarily with an underwriter. And let's just be real, Joe. I mean, nobody's vacationing to you know sunny Indianapolis or you know wherever the case. I mean, most people are not doing that. Yeah, I mean, there is some validity. There's some validity in some cases where you know it might be an hour and a half commute to the suburbs from downtown, like Chicago, where we're based. Yeah. 
a client yeah, may absolutely. have a condo in the city, a small one bedroom in the city to work in during the week and live in during the week. So that makes sense. But but if you're buying a home in you know central rural Alabama and you live in LA, it's, it's hard to document or <laughs> tell an under a convincing underwriter that you're going there you know every every month or every other month hey, for, for I've been reason. to Alabama. There's some really yeah. nice places in in central. No, I'm just picking that. Just picking <laughs> that state. <laughs> I wouldn't like, vacation there though, Joe. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wouldn't vacation there. I'm sorry. All you people from Alabama, I'm not vacationing in central Alabama. Yeah, No offense. Um, uh, just an example. Yeah. No, no um, offense. I'm from Kansas city and I wouldn't vacation there either. So let's talk a little bit about like the state of the market. And, you know, I don't want to get too crazy on what it is today, but I, what I would like to do is, is help people understand what the heck, like, you know, some people hear that it's tied to the bond market. Some people, you know, I have a lot of people who hear that interest rates, you know, they've been lowered and lowered and lowered. And now they're, you know, either zero or approaching zero. And investor loan rates are still, you know, mid fours or, you know, somewhere yeah. around there. Right. And they, the, people don't understand why this is. And they also don't understand why it is that, you know, they can go get a loan on their home for sub four. Uh, even on a jumbo loan, but they can't do, you know, an investor loan is more expensive. Help us unwind why all of that stuff is. So, I mean, obviously we get this question every day, uh, especially in the current environment or climate that we find ourselves in. But in in a normal market, uh, to a degree, you're right. As the Fed fund rate goes towards zero and currently is at zero, you know, the prime rate is, is at a floor of three and a quarter, you know. So, Typically, mortgage rates would follow. The 10-year note would follow suit, the 10-year bond. So as the 10-year bond goes down towards zero or under one, I I can't remember where it's currently trading at the moment, but in a normal market, you will see mortgage-backed securities and mortgage bonds kind of follow that lead, follow the treasury lead as it goes down or up. Now, in this instance, in the climate that we're in now, it's a little bit of an anomaly because mortgage-backed securities at the higher levels for, for investment properties, if you think about an investment property, it has an inherent layer of risk anyway over your primary residence. And that risk being, you know, the vacancy factors, the, you know, uh, the fact that it is a, an investment property with 20 or 25% down makes the difference in rates sometimes. But currently, you know, those coupons are trading at a higher level and nobody's buying those mortgage-backed securities right now. Uh, the Fed currently is buying quite a few and uh, quite a good level of mortgage-backed securities as at the lower coupons, which relates to your primary home loans and your second home loans. Mm-hmm. So today you're seeing that market quite stable and quite good and relatively in line with how it normally would be trading based on where the note, the 10-year note is, right? And where the yield is. So that market is quite stable and it's acting pretty normally. The investment property markets outside of that inherent, you know, risk layer, a perception of risk that you normally see with COVID and the current climate we're in, you see that being elevated a little bit more, A, because of forbearance and, you know, tenants given a short-term moratorium on paying, not paying rent and, and being, you know, forgiven from being evicted, if you like. Now, again, I believe that's a short-term moratorium. At some point in, in either that case or the forbearance case, you're kicking the cat down the beach and at some point you're going to make it up. So you're seeing an inherent layer of risk there on an investment property of 20% down that is probably a little bit more elevated than it normally is. Um, with 25% down on investment property, you're seeing pretty good rates, pretty normal rates there because you've got more equity into that property. The layering of risk is a little bit less. You know, the right. perception of that risk is a little bit less because you've got more into the deal. So that's acting a little bit more normally as it relates to where the current market is and the treasuries are. 
Okay, and, the, and we're the Fed fundraisers. So in, in essence, I think we're just seeing an elevated market at the moment for whatever perception of risk there is and that elevated perception of risk because what they're feeling is that any loan that goes into forbearance, temporary 90 days or six months or 120 days on a payment plan, that event, at some point, some of those folks are not going to go back to work and some of those loans will go into default, right? Yep. So who wants to buy a loan that's going to go into default if you're an investor? So they're, they're layering that risk. They're adding to that risk. And part of that is uh, including uh, price adjustments to the rate. Gotcha. So that's kind of in a nutshell, kind of basically and simply how it's working at the moment. I believe that as we turn the numbers on COVID, as we come up maybe with a vaccine or the national testing models, uh, scaling that, you'll see the market and shelter in place be lifted across the country. And a lot of the unemployment figures that we're seeing now will dramatically decrease. People will go back to work and we hope that the market will react more normally to the recessionary environment that we're in in general. Because when you shut down entire industries, they don't bounce back just because shelter in place is lifted. You know, so I believe we're going to be in a recessionary environment for you know, at least a year, maybe two. And as people go back to work, we should see mortgage rates react more normally to where the treasuries are trading and where the Fed fund rate is. Because even though the Fed is meeting this week, they're not going to move the Fed funds rate higher this week. Yeah, there's no way they're doing that. So we see that as a, as a kind of, a, it's definitely a recessionary environment that we're in. And we, I think it'll be there for quite some time. Yeah. And the mortgage rates should follow suit as, as things return to normal from an everyday living standpoint. Right. But yeah, it's going to take it's going to take more time than it took to shut this thing down. It's going to take to get this thing back up and running. There's no question. Yeah, absolutely. We hope that I mean nobody's ever we never experienced anything like this, so we really don't even know. Mm-hmm. Everybody is speculating on what what actually is going to happen. I I truly don't think that the the underlying real estate market is going to collapse. I think that this recession will be in certain sectors. And I don't think real estate's one of them. Now, I do think that some of the investment properties like you're talking about, especially with the forbearance, because um, I don't think people understand what that means. I think people think that's, you know, I don't, yeah. just don't have to pay my mortgage. And when, well, they get the, when they get the big forbearance bill, whenever the forbearance is over, unless they have one that goes on the back of their mortgage, that's going to come as qu- quite a little shock to the system that they actually have to make those payments. Yeah, and you know, the, the, it's, it's a little bit confusing at times as well, because servicers or banks or lenders are, you know, have their own set of guidelines as it relates to forbearance. Uh, one right. thing in general, I would say in relates to for, in, in, in regards to forbearance is, A, it's not forgiveness. It is kicking the can down the beach to a degree, whether it's added to your principal loan balance at the end or whether you're put on a payment plan or and you pay that off over six or 12 months or you take the temporary 90-day forbearance and then you pay four months of that, you know, those payments in arrears on the fourth month or the, you know, the 90 days is up. Right. So what I understand more recently on the guidelines from, from, from Fannie and Freddie on forbearance is if you take that 90 day forbearance option and you cannot prove the hardship to go on a payment plan, then you really have to come up with that four month bill or they will start, you know, hitting your credit and for foreclosure yeah. process now yeah i i do think um i I'm, i agree with you i think there are a lot of people who are as proven by the these large companies that took the ppp money and other things mm-hmm. like that i think there's a lot of people who are grabbing money and grabbing on to things because they think it's there's there's no detriment to them and and i don't think people have really thought that through entirely i also believe and i don't i'm, I'm interested to get your opinion on this but i 
I tend to think that people who who don't take those and and pay as they were are supposed to pay um, are going to be rewarded for that with um, local regional banks I mean, if they have loans with them, and also just in the ability to to get mortgages moving forward. I, well, I, I can't imagine that that wouldn't be the case. What do you What do you think about that? Well, I think you know, obviously, paying your mortgage on time every month keeps your credit rating intact, right? So there's no risk to that. Whereas with forbearance, if you run the you run the risk of maybe not being able to pay, you run the risk of you know not proving a hardship or not going on a payment plan, or at some point or other, without making up that difference of forbearance, the risk is there that you might have your credit bruised or you know have something hit your your credit as a derogatory. Right. So I think as a reward, I'm not quite sure they're going to give a reward to someone for paying their mortgages every month. But I will tell you that there's a guarantee there that you're not going to have hurt your credit profile. And I, I, I say that because I, you know, here we are in the middle of a, of a crisis and I have a couple of banks that are begging me to go buy apartment complexes because they want to give me money. And I don't think yeah. that that I don't think that that applies necessarily to most. I don't, I don't think if, if all of my mortgages that I had with those banks were I was asking for massive forbearance or restructuring mm-hmm. my loans. I don't think that they would be so generous or they would be reaching yeah. out to to me necessarily to try to help me find properties and um and help me acquire more assets if yeah. I were if I were constantly calling them and trying to restructure my loans. Yeah, I, I I'm on a, that's the larger level commercial world that yeah. I don't really have a lot of experience in other other than unless it's a Fannie or Freddie back commercial loan. You know that's guaranteed by them on the commercial side, um, but most commercial loans and most commercial lenders are lending portfolio money. So those banks would make their own decisions on forbearance and and whatnot. Um, right. But that's I have a limited knowledge of the commercial world. So let's, let's talk about another question we get a lot, uh, Joe. Which which is should I do a fifteen year loan or should I do a thirty year loan? You know, pricing is obviously different. There was a really big discussion on a on a Facebook post um, because a guy mentioned that you know why would you why would you do a thirty year loan if you can do a twenty year and they can close quicker and the fees are lower and you know you can get this at your local bank rather than going through a broker that you know costs more money and whatever. And I'll tell you in a minute what I took away from this, but I'm interested to hear what your what your thoughts are between a 15 and a 30 year note, and why you would do one or over the other. Well, as it relates to investment properties, I guess it just depends on your strategy. You know, are you interested in maximizing your ROI each month so you can save that to purchase another property, or on the 15 year amortization, are you interested in paying that property off as soon as possible, or having the, the tenant occupancy pay that? property off as soon as possible so that you start to reap the full rental income each month. Um, right. You know, as you, particularly as you move more into the retirement stage and you're looking at that passive income, one option over the other, it really is a personal choice, I believe for the investor on how they want to manage their portfolio and, and how they want to structure and strategize around that. Most of our borrowers will do a 30 year fixed rate and maximize their monthly ROI. Most of them look at that as a long-term tax benefit. They get to write off that interest on their income taxes every year for the longer period of time. So, you know, that that's there's an income tax play there as well for the 30-year fixed over the 15. Sometimes the 15-year fixed, I mean, I don't know if your conversation was limited to investment properties or if it related yeah, it to was, primary residences too, but the it was 15 all year investment. Fixed, yeah. Sometimes the 15-year fixed doesn't have the same credit overlays or credit price adjustments that a 30-year fixed might have. So what I mean uh, by that is, you know, you may not get a credit score adjustment to your rate 
with a lower credit score and a 15-year fixed. Or you may not get a pricing adjustment to your 15-year fixed that you will on a 30-year based on the down payment. You know, gotcha. So sometimes the 15-year fixed is a little bit more forgiving in terms of pricing, and that's why you see those better rates. But they're also understanding that there's less risk there, being that it'll be paid off sooner. You know, so but it, I, I think personally, it's it's just an individual investor's strategy on how they want to maximize, maximize yeah, so or manage I, their ROI. I 100 percent agree, and I I tell people this all the time. You know, there's a bunch of people out there that try to suggest that investing is a one size fits all thing as well, and it's and it's not. The mm-hmm. the all of the asset classes have their own unique um, characteristics, pros and cons, and it's the same in the mortgage world. Right. And, and, you know, you save money by, by getting a 15 year note. That's just, there's, there's no other way to say it. You're going to save money. It's it's impossible. Even, even if you take the 30 year and you make extra payments with your cash flow, you're still going to be a few months apart. Not, it's not crazy, but you'll be a few months apart, which is going to cost you a little bit more money. I've been through the one cycle, the crazy cycle that both of us went through taught me that Having options is a is not a bad thing, and mm-hmm. uh, that's why I like thirty year um, because if I need to lower my my rent for whatever reason so that I can get occupancy and someone else can't, you know, I may st- I may still cash flow where a fifteen year mortgage may be negative. Well, um, that's, and I that's like a great point. If I want to pay it off early, I can still pay it off early. I can yeah. still make extra payments, right. but there's no flexibility with the fifteen year loan. Well, it's all about the obligation, right? So it's all about the monthly obligation. So at the 15-year fix, that obligation is set, regardless of vacancy factors, tenancy, whatever the cases may be. But with the 30-year fix, it's about the flexibility of, yes, there's no A, there's no prepay and penalty on either option. But with the 30-year fixed rate, you can make those additional principal reductions. You can manage that principal dollar amount on your loan, but, but you're not obligated to do that. So in the case of, let's say, COVID and you know a tenant not paying for 30, 60, 90 days. You have the ability, if you're normally paying extra principal, not to do so and meet your minimum mortgage payment, protect your credit profile and, yep. and have that flexibility. So it's, it's more about flexibility there to do more with that ROI as opposed to the, the hard and fast obligation of the 15-year fixed payment that you set it and forget it there, you know? so Yeah, and I would much rather pay the few months more of interest. Um, and if I'm, if my goal is to pay it off early to have the flexibility in, in crazy times that nobody actually like, like this, that nobody is thinking of to have the option, I think is, is really, really important. Yeah. It's flexibility. Yeah, man. I, this is, this has been really, really good. So Joe, I, I, we, you know, in light of full disclosure, you do a lot of loans for us and, um, Thank you. I'm I'm happy to let everybody know that everything we talked about today is uh, is is really really important. Having someone who can actually close loans in a timely manner and do it in a in a very systematic way, where I don't I don't ha- I don't ever have to worry if if you know client A and client B are getting the same experience, they get the same experience, um, which is nice because they're going to get the same experience on our side. It's nice to be able to have a really nice systematic experience on the other side. So if people are out there listening to this and they're, and they're getting investor loans, they're not having the same experience that we talked about, um, and, and they want to reach out to you and your team, how do they find you, man? How, how's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, we, yeah, you could just call us directly. Um, you can Google a JM Lens. So Joe and Maggie Lens. It's just our brand name within Cross Country Mortgage. Uh, so you'll find us on Facebook. You'll find us on LinkedIn. Um, you can shoot me an email. I mean, guys, shoot me an email at info at rpcinvest.com. 
info at rpcinvest.com. Right. I'll get a I'll get a number from Joe and we'll put it in the show notes um, so that you guys can can reach out to them directly if you want. But you can just drop drop me an email and I'll I'll happily give you their their contact information for sure. Um, they are anybody who's made it through the crash and been able to prosper like you guys have. Man, that's a Again, it's a small club, and there's there's an invisible badge that uh, anybody who made it through that mess. Yeah. There's going to be a second. I think there's a second ribbon you get for COVID nineteen. We'll see. We'll see what happens with the COVID nineteen ribbon. Any final words for everybody, Joe? Before we before we part. Yeah, I mean, I would just encourage your your audience, your 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 uh, folks that are interested in investing in properties to you know go for it. Don't sit on the sidelines. The sooner you can get involved, the sooner you can make the commitment to building your real estate portfolio and diversifying your uh, your investments. You know, I think don't be afraid to do that. Working with us, we're going to set the expectation, like you said, properly with everybody um, in terms of our closing execution rates and fees. So we do encourage folks to you know to go go for it, you know, and start your start your building your real estate portfolio. We want to be your lender partner as you grow your portfolio, whether you're a novice buying your first home or whether you're a seasoned investor maximizing up to ten finance properties with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So you know we're happy to be your lending partner in growing your business and your portfolio. Joe, really appreciate the time, man. This was a wealth of knowledge. I think everybody's been well fed. Thank you for your time today, everybody. Absolutely. If Thank you. you. If you need a uh, if you need a mortgage, uh, reach out to uh, Joe and his team. They are fantastic. Um, they've served our clients really, really well. If you like the show, give us a, a thumbs up. We we really would appreciate you know you write us a review. We share this with with all of your friends. Throw it up on Facebook and whatever other sh- social platform you use. Share it all around the uh, the world um, and get this out there. So we appreciate you guys. Till next time. Thank you very much. This has been the Get Real Podcast. To subscribe and for more information, including a list of all episodes, go to GetRealEstateSuccess.com.